you know, you were seeing people who were defriending each other. You were seeing marriages that were literally dissolving over, you know, one spouse being pro-Trump and one being anti-Trump. It seemed to parallel what was happening with family members who would try to engage in an intervention in an addict's life. Usually what would happen is the addict would uh, cut out the family member rather than discontinue the addictive behavior. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Nick Carmody, who operates on Twitter with tens of thousands of followers. Nick describes himself as a dad, psychotherapist, poli-psych, recovering lawyer, two-time traumatic brain injury survivor, independent thinker and voter, and aspiring author. And indeed, Nick has a complicated and interesting life story and has worked to overcome many challenges. He's currently putting his talents to use, trying to explain the political psychology of Trump and the current Republican Party. Nick's Twitter threads have led him to a growing audience and appearances on such podcasts as The Lincoln Project and The Joe Trippy Show. We talked extensively about Nick's background, which he feels gives him unique insight into Trump's mental disorders and also into why Trump's followers seem to become addicted to Trump's style of communication. So, after quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Nick Carmody. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nathaniel. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? So I am a therapist. I have a uh, master's of science in psychology. I have a law degree uh, and I have a bachelor's in management of criminal justice. I um, had two life-changing traumatic brain injuries in 2010, about eight months apart in the combination of dealing with the changes in brain functioning and personality, as well as um, a really toxic divorce led me to go back to school for psychology to try to understand my experiences. And along the way, I kind of extrapolated some of my uh, lived experiences with really difficult personalities that uh, appeared to have uh, personality disorders as I started to um, observe what was going on in the political culture, especially during the 2015 primaries, I started to become aware of Trump's personality disorders. And based on the damage that I experienced in my personal life, I started to become really concerned about the effect that somebody um, with such a severe psychological profile as Trump would have on the national and the world stage. And so uh, partly just out of uh, catharsis and partly uh, out of frustration because I just wasn't seeing people or the mainstream media 
either recognizing what I was seeing or, or reporting it, if they were seeing it. Um, I started gradually writing on Twitter in about February of 2018. As I started to get a little bit of traction, I started to write more and more. Over that, that time, I've uh, developed a modest following and uh, some interesting theories on just the general collective psychology of our political climate. Well, it's certainly the case that we're in an odd moment of collective psychology. This past set of years is unlike anything I've ever seen. Certainly, I've read about things in history that might be analogs, but it's definitely worth the time to be thinking about it. It's been a sidelight to some extent in my podcast, but I've talked to some of the other people who are bringing psychological or psychiatric insight to looking at Trump or people who have worked with him over the course of many years and were close to him. He's not a normal person. I think that's pretty obvious. Doesn't take a huge amount of insight to pick that up, but you've really been working pretty hard on it. And you found yourself on, you know, with this following that you're talking about on notable podcasts in the space, the Lincoln Project and and Joe Trippi's podcast. And I've so I've started to to pay attention to what you're up to. And I thought it'd be good to to get to know you a little bit. That's kind of the background for why you're here. I want to ask you some more things about that biography because uh boy, there's a lot there. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up about uh, 45 minutes north of Chicago. I actually flunked out of college the first time around. Well, before you jumped to college, what kind of family did you grow up in back then? I grew up with a single mom. I had a younger brother about four years younger. I'm not sure how, how detailed you want to get. I'm, I'm very transparent with that. I mean, I read, I think on your site, that you had some traumatic experience as a young person. Um, it feels like a lot of what you're doing is bringing the personal in your life into the political interpretation you do. Do you want to talk about sure, sure. that trauma just briefly? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you know, ultimately we're not dealing with a political problem. We're dealing with a psychological problem. And you know, usually when there's psychological issues, it's trauma-related. And I think that you know, for me, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of this was very cathartic especially when I was going through my, with my brain injuries, I dealt with some pretty severe depression. I dealt with some severe anxiety. I got a memoir that I've uh, not been working on enough, but that uh, you know, I got several hundred pages into it. But I opened that memoir with a suicide note that I wrote on March 4th of 2014. So for me, th this process has you know, not only been, you know, recently, you know, cathartic with the trauma and everything that I've dealt with, but I've also incorporated some stuff with, uh, I had some pretty intense sexual abuse that I dealt with at five years old, which seemed to be endemic throughout uh, both sides of my family. I think a lot of therapists kind of get into that field. And for me, it was a middle-aged pivot in my 40s. But I think a lot of therapists get into the field because they are either trying to uh, understand their own experiences or to use those lived experiences to relate to uh, and help other people. And so that's a big part of both my practice and what I do you know, in my writing is that I try to bring my lived experiences and my philosophies and my techniques that I've used to deal with my own trauma to help other people uh, connect to and relate to what's going on in their own. Were you treated for that trauma? Did you seek therapy for it at any point? I've actually never actually been to a therapist. Uh, one of the things that I uh, I've meant, you know, that I, that I mentioned, I talk about is after I flunked out of college, I got pretty heavy into 
uh, drug use and drug dealing. I actually got busted down in Texas in uh, 1996 when I was 24 years old. One of the motivations to go into law school and become a lawyer was that experience. And uh, similarly, when I had the mental health issues after the brain injuries, you know, that obviously was, was a big motivation. And so one of the ways that I frame it is that at a time when I needed a lawyer, I became one. And at a time when I needed a psychologist, you know, I also became one. And that's just kind of been my MO is that, you know, at a time in my life when I found that, you know, I, I needed somebody um, in a pretty desperate way, you know, I just found a way to come and be, go and become that person. It's an odd set of qualifications, all of this life struggle for talking with assurance about our politics. It might be a good fit for the times, but it is probably a bit of an unusual path. You, you're starting to say that you flunked out a... One of the ways that I look at my background and, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, the, the lawyer in me allows me to almost instantly notice the flaws or the logic uh, uh, in an argument. And the psychologist in me almost instantly allows me to understand the motivations and the emotions behind it. I kind of, you know, hit it from both sides where a lot of what I write is, you know, it's, it, it can be very persuasive. It's very analytical. It's, you know, deconstructing or dissecting what's going on. And then the psychological aspect of it is kind of then, you know, uh, uh, diagnosing or dissecting it from a, uh, a psychological and emotional uh, standpoint. What was going on with you that you weren't doing the work in college or how do you understand that? I think it was a la- just a lack of sophistication. I was the first person in my family, I, I think on either side, definitely on my mom's side. I don't have any content on my dad's side, but definitely my mom's side to go to college. I think there, um, there was only one high school diploma between my parents. They were, you know, my dad dropped out. They were both very young. And my grandparents came over when there was uh, right after World War II. Um, I think my grandma was basically recruited from a, a refugee camp. And then my grandfather basically abandoned her when he came over here. And there was, uh, you know, some pretty pretty bad things going on to the kids from, you know, from him, which seemed to have cycled down uh, into, into my generation and my cousins. Um, but I, you know, I think for me, when I went to school initially, it's very intimidating for somebody who doesn't have a history of, of uh, higher education to go to school for the first time. I even just filling out financial aid forms. And I deal with this with some, with some of the kids I work with now as my clients is that, you know, it, it can be a very fine line between um, somebody pursuing higher education and pursuing their dreams and being so discouraged by what seem to be administrative or paperwork roadblocks, um, especially if you don't have somebody who's already been through that process. And, um, you know, I got a couple of kids now that, um, you know, I, I'm positive they, they would have, you know, turned their back on going to school, but for a little bit of help and mentoring, trying to get them through the paperwork. There's numerous times in my own life where I could look back and think of how close it was where, you know, I, I, I almost didn't, uh, you know, go the direction that I went. I mean, there were times I remember I had to go back for uh, prerequisites as a 40-something-year-old attorney because I didn't have any psychology background. And I was still so emotionally damaged from the brain injuries and the toxic divorce and all that, that just having to go around the room and be introduce ourselves to community college kids where they're literally young enough to be my kids. But that process of having to go around and when it was my turn to have to explain why I was there not knowing if I was going to keep it together emotionally. That was so you know, traumatizing and triggering. Both times I almost got up and walked out before it was my turn. That would have basically you know, nipped this whole psychologist process in the bud. But you must have dropped back into college if you dropped out. Huh? Well, I, well, I didn't actually drop out. I flunked out. You know, once, uh, you know, I just, just didn't have the grades, flunked out. Um, you know, as I said, I got, got pretty heavy in the drug use, drug dealing, got busted. We were looking at two to 10 years in prison. 
ended up coming back as a temporary employee. I started working on printing presses and I worked on the printing presses for about a decade. And so I worked on the night shift on the printing presses while I was uh, two years full time to go back in 1998 and went back to get my bachelor's um, for two years full time. And then even the first two and a half years of law school, I was still working at the printing company on the night shift. And so for me, it was the frustration um, there, and there seemed to be some some shady shit that went on with my attorney. But part of the frustration for me was that, you know, I, I was perceived to be, you know, this piece of shit drug dealer. And there were some things that went on with my case, you know, whether it was the police or whether it was my lawyer for my benefit, but that are perceived to be kind of the upstanding, you know, uh, officers of the court or, or, you know, officers of the law. And yet here I was, you know, perceived to be this piece of shit drug dealer. And so, you know, part of it was... Hey, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. Can you be like straightforward about what you think went on? Um, let's say that. I'd maybe not talk, get into that right now. I don't want you to get off on too much of a tangent. Okay. Um, I'm just I'm just trying to get to understand where, where you're coming from. Another thing that you're sort of in a certain way credentializing yourself with is this marriage because you have said that the person you were married to had some of the similar psychological disorders that you've seen coming from the top out of the presidency. Can you talk a little bit about who you were married to? I would prefer to just keep it as just, you know, close relationships that I had. It wasn't your wife that was this problem? I would prefer not to get too much into her specifically. You said that you were around people that had some of these personality disorders and you learned from having experienced that closeness from whoever that was, what did you observe that, that you bring to bear on the Trump phenomenon? So one of the things that I observed, just the, the inability to, uh, to kind of put other people's needs above their own, how it seems to work um, is there's, there's kind of this, this um, multi-generational um, cycling down of dysfunction that happens. And I, what I refer to it as a uh, steal it forward dynamic. And what seems to happen is that you'll have a, a generation, right? A mom, right? Who um, had a pathological parenting. And so what ends up happening is oftentimes the pathological parent will have their, uh, will have unmet emotional needs as a child because of the pathological parenting they experienced from their parents, right? And so what ends up happening is they, they tend to reach forward they kind of steal it forward and they use their own children, what I refer to as uh, ego accessories, to kind of backfill their unmet emotional needs from when they were a child. So they steal from the subsequent generation's own uh, emotional needs. They kind of use them as an extension of their self. And, and what I describe it as a, an ego accessory, kind of like a, a shoes or a purse matches an outfit, as you know, they accessorize. The kid is basically there to be a positive reflection upon upon the parent. And so you see this, you know, the grandparent has unmet, unmet emotional needs. They, they reach forward. They steal from their, their child to backfill their unmet emotional needs. Then that parent reaches forward to the grandchild and, and kind of steals it forward. And just kind of watching how this dynamic plays out and the disregard for uh, anyone else but themselves and just this pathological level of insecurity, the pathological dishonesty, the, the need to create alternate realities and revisionist histories. And this is where you really see it, you know, with the politics, with a, a lot of the conspiracy theories and uh, the fake news stuff and the lying. And so you're just kind of observing that and li living through that and, and watching that happen 
Um, you know, when I started to see one of the things that I would, would see happen in 2015 was that almost just having on this background noise, I'd be cooking dinner or something for my daughter and I'd be listening to Trump during these primaries. And it was uh, it was weird. I mean, it was his voice, but the defense mechanisms, the, the deflections, his mannerisms, um, it was as if, as, if, as if I was listening to people who I had close personal relationships with speaking, but it was his voice. It was everything the same. It was just this really eerie uh, um, experience of, of seeing the people you know well, but through him. And so the more, the more I observed him, the more I kind of was seeing, you know, what was there um, with his disorders, but on a, a much more severe degree. And that's when I started to really become uh, concerned about what was to come with him. I talked to a previous guest who came out of an evangelical background and had moved to uh, messaging on the left. But she said something like when she heard Trump say certain things, there were parts of her that kind of lit up, that there was something receptive she found in herself to what he was saying that surprised her and which she sort of had to fight against out of her new knowledge and new position in the world, which had taken quite some work to sort of transition from the evangelical right to the progressive left. What does that sound like to you? So you said she was, uh, it was resonating with her in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, it was drawing her to him. Yeah, it was drawing her and she had to fight that. Like she had to notice and fight that in herself. Yeah, I think one of the things, you know, one of the reasons why I think the evangelicals are so drawn to Trump is that they can relate to the, the persecution comp- complex that he has. And that's one of the things with, you know, with his narcissism is that, you know, he's always the victim. And one of the, the things that he's really good at is that when he's being investigated or when he's being uh, you know, held accountable or whatever it is, he's always making sure that he's telling the country that you know, it's a disgrace what they're doing to this country. What's really happening is it, it's, it's what's being done to him, right? It's, he's being investigated or he's being impeached, but he's always re- really careful to make sure that everybody feels like what is happening to him is happening to them collectively. And that's you know, one of the things that happened with the election is that all the, although you know, he claims the election was stolen from him. His messaging is to make, you know, the 70 some million people who voted for him to make them feel like they have been wrong, like they have been victimized, like they have been, you know, there's this, this persecution against them. A lot of times we, religions operate on that us versus them uh, mindset, that us versus them mindset is often uh, fueled by a persecution complex. Just to hit this briefly, I guess, another thing that you have mentioned upfront and and you do on your website is this thing that happened to you in 2010. I take it you got hit on the head pretty hard two times. Yeah, I had a, uh, one of them was a tree cutting accident where I had a tree fall over me. I live up in the mountains at the time and face planted and the tree fell over me and caught me on the head and shoulders. And the second time was actually a uh, still foggy and hazy from the first brain injury. I literally ran myself over with my vehicle. I didn't get caught in the wheels, but I wrapped the the, the inside of the door around the back of my head and basically bent it out at a 45 degree angle, bounced my head off the ground. That sounds very unfortunate. I've felled a lot of trees in my life and I have tried really hard to avoid having them land on me. What actually happened in that situation? I know it can be super tricky. Yeah, I actually blacked out before. And this was, you know, some of the experiences with the cluster B personality disorders that, you know, the people that I was uh, mentioning, um, it was a five weeks after my daughter was born, and uh, there was just a, a lot of really crazy family civil war, basically, infighting. 
after a lot of tests, you know, with the doctors, they just basically concluded that it was because of the stress of all the stuff that was going on that I blacked out. So I, I literally blacked out, face planted, and then a couple of the guys that were cutting this tree down with me, uh, that's when the tree fell over me. You were working as a team and you were just really unfortunate that of the timing of that? Yeah, I was actually out there helping a, uh, an old veteran who had a, a firewood business and uh, I was just trying to get out of the house and get some, some uh, manual labor to try to relieve some of the stress of what was going on within the house. And uh, uh, that was you know, what happened that day. So what's the real turning point for you? How do you make this decision to treat yourself by getting a master's, which is how I read that? if you can correct me if I'm wrong, and to escape the marriage. And it sounds like there was kind of a nexus of of decisions and steps forward there. How, how does that happen? Well, as I mentioned, when I was, you know, bottoming them out from a depression standpoint, it was dealing with suicidal ideation that went beyond just ideation. One of the ways that I pulled myself out of that um, was with really intense exercise and working out. I played 11 years of football through college, D3 football. And I'd always worked out really hard. Um, and, and luckily, even at my lowest point with the depression, I was always able to get myself into the gym. And, and one of the, the things that I've always been able to do is to kind of channel negative emotion into a constructive activity to produce a productive result. And that was very cathartic for me. I mean, there was, you know, the thoughts that I would have when I was in the middle of my workouts were basically the, thing, the things I'd be talking about if, you know, I was on the couch or talking to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and uh, just kind of working myself through these things. And so, you know, as I started to pull out of it, one of the things that I started to kind of conceptualize was that, you know, I, I, I had this image that I thought it would be useful for other people who experienced traumatic brain injuries, TBIs. And so I started to kind of envision going back to school and becoming a, uh, a therapist and kind of incorporating that into a practice where I would have a, a small gym in my office and, you know, work with former military guys or former athletes or law enforcement and basically uh, incorporate you know strenuous activity into the the uh, the therapy uh, process, which is which is what I do now. That's how I operate it now. Um, and so that kind of came the you know the motivation. You know, at a previous time when I found myself in a hole, I, I went back to school and pulled myself out of it to become a lawyer. And so at this time around, when I found myself you know really bottoming out, and, and this was all happening in Colorado, where you know I'm from Chicago, so I, I mean I was in isolation. I had no friends. I had no family. And it was basically trying to, you know, rebuild my life with no job, no money and a diminished state and injured. And, um, you know, so at that point, that was kind of the, the thought process. Well, you know, if, if school is what you use to pull yourself out of a hole last time, then, you know, then that's what you need to do this time, too. I spent a lot of time walking as I got older, and I've always felt like I'm smarter when I'm walking. And I often go walking with other people and we counsel each other or chat. And, and it's well known that exercise is like as, as good a treatment for depression or better than drugs. And so it seems like you were definitely onto something there. Yeah. And not only that, but um, it, there's actually a re some research I used in one of my, I had a couple of theses that I wrote uh, where they had a study where they divided uh, three groups of people with major depression. One group got um, six months of just exercise, moderate intensive intensity exercise, one group got just antidepressants and one group got both. They ran the study. I think they checked back on them. I think it was six months after treatment. And then after six months, the group that had just exercised had fewer depressive symptoms than both the group that had just antidepressants and the group that had antidepressants and exercise. That's not good for the people selling antidepressants. No, it is. It, it is. Well, it's, you know, the other part yeah. of that, too, and, and uh, you know, I, I was still working a construction job up until two years ago. 
while I was in, in grad school and uh, at the beginning of my practice. So it basically forced me to be in the gym at like three o'clock in the morning because I had, I had a you know, full-time job at seven in the morning working construction. I had a single dad you know, with my daughter and all that. And I think I kind of stumbled on exercise uh, promotes neurogenesis, right, is, which is increased synaptic connections, which is you know, increased neuron production. And for me, I had to multitask, whether it was a treadmill or the Stairmaster, whatever it was, where I had to do my grad school work while I was exercising. And so, you know, when you're studying and when you're learning things, you're also, there's neurogenesis, you're creating new synaptic connections. And I think that the, the experience of doing those two things at the same time had a uh, kind of a, a compounding or almost an exponential effect on both the healing from uh, my brain injuries. Strangely enough, I function at a higher level in some areas after the two TBIs than I did beforehand. And I'm kind of convinced that it's, you know, due to some of the things that were happening and what I refer to as a... Um, you know, a very fertile rehabilitative window right after the injury. It's almost, I, I almost analogize it to like a, an extra sketch. You know, you, you had that brain injury, you shake that extra sketch, you know, you almost had this, this blank canvas and, you know, or actually another analogy that I use to this is I don't know if you're familiar with baseball, but sometimes when you have a sports injury, you can come back stronger than through the rehab process than you were before the injury. Sometimes you hit you tear an ACL, you rehab the right ACL, the right one is more is stronger than the left one. There's there's a, a surgery called Tommy John surgery in baseball where they have a, a, a ligament. I mean, it's the ulnar collateral ligament tears, and those got kids come back from that that injury throwing a few miles per hour faster than beforehand. And so I kind of analogized my brain injury recovery, where because of what what I was immersed with, and I was writing constantly, and I was dealing with really complex personalities and, and, and very analytical thought processes and, and analysis that the, the things that I was doing when I was re- rehabilitating from my injury were the things that I came back functioning at a higher level. Well, I, I mean, our brains are very plastic. And when we exercise them, they get smarter. I don't have any expertise in what happens with the brain injury, but it's it's a plausible, plausible theory. What happened with the practice of law? If you went to law school, why are you working construction? Did you decide you didn't like it? What happened there? It was complex. I think part of it was I fell into the trap. It was such a huge push to become a lawyer that I think that part of it was that I viewed it as as the ends rather than a means to the ends. The degree was what you were seeking rather than to practice? Possibly. It wasn't so much the degree. Another sports analogy is sometimes when, uh, like in the NBA game, sometimes you'll, you'll have a team fall down by 25 and they make this huge, furious comeback only to lose by like two or three points at the end because they spend so much energy on coming, I've seen it many times, yep. coming back, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that was part of it is that, you know, the amount of energy that it took working full time, um, sl- you know, sleeping two to three hours a night, two to three, day- two to three days a week, um, just this, this massive push to do what felt like the impossible. Um, it almost seemed like, you know, right when I got to the end, it was maybe there was some burnout. It just took so much energy, energy that... I didn't have any more to push forward. There was also some some. Difficulty. Did you finish? I did, did, you, I did finish. I'm a member. Did you remember? Did you pass the bar? Yeah, I didn't take the bar until two. I actually went back and ran printing presses for a couple of years uh, or for a year, and then back into printing and management for a year before I did take the bar. But there was also some dysfunctional competitiveness in, in my marriage. It almost felt like there wasn't enough room in in the the marriage and the house for two lawyers, and it felt toxic. It just felt like it just in order for the marriage to survive, it could only uh, it could only be one lawyer. And so for me, I wasn't loving the law at the time. I did love my wife. And so for me, it was kind of to look for um, other ways to stimulate myself and to support her and, and her push to, to have a very successful career. 
So tell me about this master's that you do in psychology. Um, what did you study? Where? Why? What turned you on about it? So when I first uh, was pursuing it, I was pursuing a doctorate. I applied to uh, University of Denver, um, their PsyD program. And uh, although all I had was a gen ed in psych in 1990, this was 2014. So I had a gen ed in 1990 and then another one in 98 when I went back uh, to finish my bachelor's. Um, I had zero formal psychology uh, background. So I applied and I wrote two really good essays, one describing somebody close to me that looking back on it now was basically a, um, you know, a treatise on narcissism, even though I didn't know what the personality disorder was at the time. And then the other one was basically explaining, you know, kind of my background with the brain injuries and, and kind of coming back uh, with the, the sexual abuse, just the resiliency and, and, and you know, everything that uh, bringing all that forward into the practice. And so I, I got an interview, which I'm sure I was probably just awful at because I had, you know, was in way over my head at the time um, and didn't get accepted. I, the interview itself was, was you know, kind of a, a slim chance to even get that, but probably the essays got me in. Uh, the following year, I applied again. I didn't even get the interview. And at that point, you know, I felt myself kind of starting to uh, spiral. I was running out of money. You know, at one point, you know, as recently as 2016, I was working for you know, 11.75 an hour in the kitchen of an assisted living facility, washing dishes, mopping floors, and, and cooking what was basically slop, you know, for the residents. And uh, just, you know, desperately trying to get, you know, find any way to get back into school. Um, because of law school, I, I finally got accepted in the master's program, but because of law school debt, I wasn't eligible for federal funding and my credit wasn't good enough to get private funding. So I, I matched out my credit cards and drained what little 401k I, I had. I was basically thinking that I might only be able to pay for a few grad school classes, but I was so desperate to create some positive momentum that I figured even one or two classes might be enough to maybe springboard me into some respectable type of work. Luckily, I was able to kind of figure it out. But even, you know, that, that first class started on a Monday. Where'd you go, by the way? I went to Tiffin University in Ohio. I've never heard of Tiffin. What, what is that? Tell me about that a little. Well, I didn't go. I was an online program, so I've actually never been on campus. But um, it was a program that had the, uh, the curriculum that I was looking at that was heavily, um, um, you know, a, a lot of psych stuff. I needed to kind of understand my experiences. So it was heavy on what used to be abnormal psychology or psychopathology and a, a lot of really uh, theoretical psychological classes, which I liked. And it was also uh, um, convenient as far as the time started. I needed to start as soon as possible. I couldn't wait, you know, a whole nother year because, as I said, I was running out of resources and feeling like I was just kind of spiraling back to a bad place. Two days into the first class, um, I was kind of overwhelmed with the reading, still dealing with the brain injuries. I would read a paragraph didn't pay attention to it. You know, I'd read it again, didn't pay attention to it. You know, I couldn't focus on it. I'd read it again. I could not comprehend it. And I was just get, getting so pissed off that I fired off emails to the professors telling them that, you know, at this point in my life and everything that I, you know, experienced, I just, I think I bit off more than I can chew. I don't think I can handle a grad school program anymore. And, you know, and luckily, you know, I, I stuck to it. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the final for that class ended up being uh, some, a, a paper I wrote on narcissistic personality disorder got an A in that class, got an A in the next class, and I ended up finishing that program with a 4.0. But, you know, if you would have asked me at any point prior to finishing that, that if I could have finished a, a grad school program with a 4.0 after two brain injuries, you know, I never would have believed it. I just wouldn't have thought it was possible. But, it, you know, it's kind of a, a life lesson that, you know, we're always capable of more than what we perceive that we can uh, accomplish. Oftentimes, you know, it's cliche, but the hardest part is starting. And usually when we do start something, our refusal to quit something 
you know, will carry us through it. And, and that's what happened with me. What were the one or two key things that you learned in that program that you take with you forward? I think for me, it was just, you know, just the perseverance. I was more thinking about like what you learned in the classes. Is that not really what? I had a psychopathology professor who at one point um, told me because I, you know, when I was writing about, we, we would have these discussion posts and I was writing about my experiences with, you know, these personality disordered people in my life. She had a PhD. She was uh, in clinical psychology for 17 years. And one of her comments was, you know, you are, you are teaching both me and the class things that we could never learn in a book. And that was kind of bringing in my personal experiences and my ability to kind of, you know, observe and analyze in a unique way that, that I'm able to do, you know, as evidenced by all the stuff that I write currently. When I was writing a thesis on confirmation bias in the Trump era, you know, one of the things that I, w- that I wanted to, you know, explore was, you know, one of the things that we talked about earlier, but that, uh, that has kind of gotten some traction is this addiction model. The advisor is like, well, you know, we can't, you can't include that. She's like, that, that's something that you'd have to spend a whole career on and we don't have the resources to study that stuff. And so for me, you know, I half jokingly say it, but, you know, when people ask me, how the hell did you get a 4.0 in your high school after two brain injuries? And one of the things that, you know, I kind of have to you know, jokingly say is that, well, it's because it was all review. It was all, it was all shit that I had lived through. And so it was review and I'm being, you know, kind of, kind of joking about it, but you know, in a way I didn't necessarily go to grad school to learn. I went to confirm. And a lot of that's what it was. It was, you know, I needed to know that, you know, if you're told that you're crazy by crazy for a long enough period of time, you start to believe it. And I kind of needed to go to, go to school to kind of, you know, figure out, you know, where, where that crazy lied. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was outside of you, not inside of you as well. Uh, I, I, you know, not entirely, but, but substantially. It never is entirely. That's right, not entirely. <laughs> it doesn't seem like you've had an easy road. It's not uncommon, but you, it, it wasn't a straightforward path to success for you. When you look back at that stretch of your life from starting college to finishing a master's after having finished a law degree. Do you feel like you've like passed through this gauntlet? How do you view your life backwards to that point? You know, one of the things that I, that I constantly uh, try to drill into clients that I work with is that life is not linear, right? I mean, it just isn't. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I compare it to like a graph, you know, if you get real close to a graph, and you see the up and down data points, right? You see the nonlinear aspect of life. But if you step back 10, 15, 20 feet and you look at that graph, what you see is the general trend going in an up and up direction. And that's kind of what you got to focus on in life is just the general trend and not get too caught up or too discouraged about the regressions uh, because life isn't linear. When I was at my lowest point after the brain injuries, it was infuriating to find myself in a position where you know, I didn't have a pot to piss in. And I didn't have, you know, a friend or a family member, you know, in the world at that point, because I basically cut ties with everybody when I hit my lowest point. And, um, you know, it's really easy to get caught up into victimhood and all that stuff, especially when, you know, you found yourself, you know, that, you know, in a hole, you've essentially, you know, climbed out of that hole, you know, you've climbed that mountain, you've climbed to Mount Everest, you've accomplished something that, you know, a relatively small number of people have done. And to have to do it despite all the adversity that you had to fight through. And then at middle age, suddenly find yourself in a, in a similar hole and be like, right, I'm going to have to do this again. Are you kidding me? You know, th- you know how, how is this fair? How can this possibly be the situation that at, you know, 40 something years old, you know, I'm, I'm working in a kitchen for less than 12 bucks an hour trying to get into grad school so I can climb Mount Everest all over again. 
But, you know, the reality of it is, is that, you know, as, as we know, it's, you know, it's life isn't fair and life isn't just. And, you know, one of the things that I try to do is that I try to find ways to reframe what's going on to manufacture emotion. You know, I had a friend one time, um, it was actually after my second class in grad school, I had the engine blow in my car and the engine blew on my vehicle. And, and she's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. I'm like, what do you mean you're not too worried about? She's like, I'm just not. She goes, because bad things motivate you. She goes, this is going to piss you off and you're going to catch fire even more than you already are. And, and it's, you know, you're going to use it to your advantage. You're going to, you're going to channel that native emotion into something constructive. And, and that's basically, you know, that's been my MO. Can I ask you just like one more, were you a political person along that, that, to that point? Did your family follow politics? Did you follow politics? Or was it only with the advent of Trump that you started to be politicized in, in a different way? No, I followed politics probably since about um, 19 or 20 years old. I first started following when I was, you know, bottoming out, uh, with the depression and the brain injuries, I actually uh, was in this, you know, tiny mother-in-law cabin up in the mountains where I didn't have uh, a TV and, and my internet uh, was, <laughs> I could only afford the internet after 1, 1 a.m. in the morning. So I was basically cut off. So I, I had a, a few years stretch where I basically was removed from politics. I mean, I was, when you're dealing with suicidal ideation, politics almost seems um, a luxury because you're just trying to stay alive for your, you know, four-year-old kid. Um, and that's, you know, when I first started, you know, kind of re, um, integrating myself into society and kind of, you know, coming out of my shell and kind of getting healthy again, it was right in 2015. And so, you know, some of the stuff I've written, I've incorporated, you know, emails or things that I had written back in like 2006 and stuff like that. When I was writing about the politics at the time, just more on like, you know, 50 or 60 people, email chains and stuff like that. Um, but there was, you know, there was there was a small period of time, you know, two three years where I kind of just disengaged from everything because I just wasn't in the place to follow it. You mentioned that you started tweeting back in 2018 around February. Why and what kind of reaction did you receive? I was a Twitter stalker for about a year. I had uh, somebody um, who I had followed in a uh, sports context um, was on there. He wrote about other stuff. He he was a single dad. He had uh, you know kind of been devastated during the housing crash. Um, he was you know same age as me. He was in the same music and stuff like that. So I would go on there just to kind of see what he was posting. And as I would be on there, I'd start to see some of the political stuff and and you know the the mainstream media and stuff. And and that's when I was kind of uh, observing what was going on with the politics and Trump and that. I just got you know as I said, I got frustrated. I'm like, why, why the hell is nobody else seeing this stuff? Why is you know, why, why is nobody else framing it in the way that it should be framed? I feel like there was the world was rife with people saying that he was a narcissist and things like that. What do you mean there was nobody saying it? Well, early on, there didn't there didn't seem to be and there didn't seem to be the type of uh, there didn't seem to be any, anybody who was writing the way that I was writing it. And so, you know, initially I, it was I was writing a few things. And I think, I you know, I, I, don't, I think I still had like 100 followers by like uh January of 2019. I mean, it was almost a full year on and, you know, I was just like, you know, what the hell does it t you know, take to get a follower on here? And then I started writing a few threads. And when I started writing a few threads, uh, you know, I started getting a little bit of traction. And then, you know, I'll, you get a, a couple of bigger accounts that will re retweet your work. And then I've, I've been really lucky to have, you know, bigger accounts. I mean, the guys at the, the Lincoln Project have been uh, very generous. Reed Galen and Rick Wilson, those guys have been really generous with their platform and retweeting that stuff. And obviously, you know, when you have somebody with a million followers, you know, retweeting 27 tweets of a, of a thread, you know, that you really get some traction on that stuff. And I've been fortunate to have, you know, some really generous, uh, um, you know, help with uh, 
promoting some. How many followers do you have now? Um, it's a little bit over 40,000. I've noticed that people in the Twitter universe, like they really measure themselves by the number of followers to some extent. It seems to be a, a badge of honor to feel like that many people care what you say. Right. right. It's validation. It's validation and affirmation. Um, you know, especially at a time when the last couple of years with COVID where we've been isolated, you don't get the in-person validation or, you know, you're talking to the world. Yeah. You're talking to the uh, world. You know? what, what was the first big account? Would you say that followed you and retweeted you and gave you a little more uh, well, prominence? I'm not sure who that would have been. Well, how did the Lincoln project first spot you? Is there a story there? Maybe it was me posting my threads to something that they had posted. They kind of scroll down and see it. Um, you tried to hook on to it. Yeah, you'll hook on to it. You know, so a topic comes on or you'll quote, quote tweet something with a thread. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, and it's tough. If somebody's got a million followers, it's tough for them to see something you post or whatnot. It was really, really fortunate. You know, I know, uh, you know, you'd see, you know, I'd see Reed, Reed Galen, you know, retweeting something or Bill Crystal, who I know you just had on not too long ago. You know, he, he's. I had Reed on a, a, a considerably earlier than that, too. Yeah. Um, you know, Bill Crystal's been pretty generous with that stuff. Slowly, one by one, you just start seeing, you know, more of the, um, the, the more prominent figures in the political arena or media or whatever it is. You know, the, you know, they, you know, if one of them retweets something, obviously people who pay attention to them, you know, it's in a way it's very clickish. A lot of times people will, will judge somebody's comment based on how many followers they have. You know I mean? It's not necessarily, you're not being judged, but you know, based on the substance of, of your analysis or what you say, you know, I think first they might click on it. Oh, he's got a you know, thousand followers. You know, I'm not going to pay attention. Oh, he's got, you know, a hundred thousand followers. I'm going to give that comment a little bit more. Do you know what you were writing that they latched onto? Well, the this spring, I wrote something about, uh, you know, right-wing mob justice uh, after the Chauvin trial. Um, I wrote something about um, the uh, manipulation. And I think that's what got me invited on the, uh, the Lincoln Project podcast was after that one. But, you know, there's this manipulation uh, and exploitation of the neuropsychological um, fear response. And so, you know, what, what ends up happening is that the amygdala, which is responsible for how we experience emotion and fear, it's a much more primitive um, uh, area of the brain that's located near the brainstem. And the cerebral cortex, which is responsible for our judgment and for our reason and our rationality, is the most evolved uh, area of the brain. Well, one of the things that you know we seem to uh, you know you see with just uh, politics in general is the, the use of fear, and it's to try to manipulate that fight or flight fear response, and so. You know, we have evolved to deal with stress and to deal with fear over, you know, thousands of generations. And, you know, with that, that evolution, um, you know, we basically evolved to, um, you know, any delay in, in fighting may have led to us losing in battle, right? Any delay in fleeing may have led to us being caught in flight. And so, you know, what, what's basically, you know, ha happened through that process is that we have been conditioned to react first and think later. And you see that a lot in, in politics, right? And so, you know, when you think about the fight or flight or the fear factor, you know, it, it almost creates this uh, PTSD-like hypervigilance where we see everything as a threat to our survival or everyone as a threat to survival. So, you know, m minor threats to, you know, wealth or status or identity uh, is basically perceived through the lens of an existential threat. What I'm assuming is that there's kind of a ecosystem on Twitter now of people like the Lincoln Project, 
uh, I know you've been on on, on Trippy's podcast, um, who are kind of linking to each other and promoting each other and talking about the problems with Trumpism, which are existential for the country to some extent. Who else do you see as prominent and you read and would want to elevate in that in that ecosystem? What, what do you mean? Who else is getting heard by having a lot of followers, by saying things that are useful to the world? Like it, some people think that you're one of them, right? You've come up to 40,000, you're getting retweeted. If I were going to go start from fresh on, on Twitter and follow 10 different people or organizations or 15, who, who would you put on that list to read? As far as made, you know, b- bigger names or bigger accounts? Some intersection between insightful and have, have reach. So one guy that I ran into who I interviewed was Ron Filipkowski. Have you run across him? Yeah, I do. I think he's putting out some really good work. And uh, yeah, I, uh, he just had an interview. I think it was on CNN that went, uh, went viral. Um, yeah, I do. I really like his work. Uh, Jim Stewartson is somebody who uh, does a lot of research on Mike Flynn. And I know his, his account has really been blowing up. Jared Yates Sexton, I was on his podcast. I know he does a lot of uh, uh, really good work. I'm trying to think of people who maybe most people might not know. Are there other organizations like Lincoln that you think is in that category? Um, I'm not thinking off the top of my head. Another one is uh, Trigby Olson. He's affiliated with uh, the Lincoln Project, or at least he's been on there quite a bit. He doesn't have a big following, but he's done a lot of work uh, worldwide on pro-democracy movements. And he, he's got some really good work as well. Marshall Herskovitz is a really smart guy. He has a lot of really good takes. He's got a small following, but he's actually a producer out in Hollywood. He's a very smart guy. I, I tend to uh, um, find a lot of his stuff very insightful. It's kind of a, a marvel to me. There's this alternate world of Twitter expertise on these big matters. Do you think that there's as much or more insight in that world as there is when you read the regular newspapers or watch cable news? There's some overlap, clearly. What do you think of this this world that you're part of? I think there definitely is. You know, I think, um, you know, the the best part about social media is that everybody has a voice, but also the worst part about social media is that everybody has a voice. And so, you know, you get, you know, people like myself or um, some of the names we mentioned, you might otherwise, you know, never had a chance to, to express, you know, some really insightful, some really useful um, thoughts or ideas. Um, but at the same time, you get a lot of people who are, you know, really tearing down, negatively affecting the discourse or promoting disinformation or, or propaganda. And that makes it really, you know, really dangerous. And it does get to a point. I mean, even, you know, I catch myself even with, with people whose, you know, whose accounts and whose, whose minds and whose insights I trust, you know, you still want to try to double check everything. You know, I try to be really careful what, what I retweet because I don't want to, you know, it's, it's cliche, but it didn't take a, you know, a lifetime to build a reputation, but, you know, a split second to ruin it. And, you know, if you, you've been really careful and, and you're with your own work and your meticulousness, you know, for years, and then you retweet something that, you know, ends up being wrong or disinformation or something like that, you know, people start to question whether or not they can trust you. There's no policing of it for the most part. I mean, obviously there is, you know, to extend it, you know, they've taken people off there, but 
you know, there's a pretty wide latitude as far as what people can say and what they do say. What kind of impact are you hoping to have? I mean, you're putting a lot of time, uh, I mean, writing these Twitter treatises, these threads. Um, that's a lot of effort, a lot of intellectual uh, ferment. What impact are you seeking? Let me answer that in a minute. But, you know, I think a big part of it for me is when you're dealing with what appears to be insanity, sometimes just understanding the why goes a long way towards maintaining your own sanity. And I think that's part of the reason why um, I've gotten a little bit of traction is because most people are watching what's going on and it, it's mind bending. They can't wrap their mind around what, you know, what the hell is going on, why, and all, you know, all of that stuff. And so put me in that category. Sometimes just understanding the why helps you just kind of function, just get through, you know, what's going on You maintain your own sanity. And for me, um, you know, there's, I forget who the author was, but there's an author who once said that, you know, I don't know what I think until, until I start to write. And that's part of it for me. There's a lot of times where these threads that, you know, that have been very complex and very long, when I start writing them, I, I, I had no idea that I was going to talk about some of the stuff that I was going to write. I just started writing and then, you know, oh, that this is connected to that, this is connected to that. So in some ways, I'm almost teaching myself as, I, as I'm writing it, especially if I start to do a little bit of reading. You know, oh, I just want to, I want to link or a citation for this, you know, for this theory or whatever it may be. It leads me to something else. So this is related, whatever it may be. And so, you know, part of it for me is it's cathartic. It helps me kind of maintain my own sanity by understanding what's going on. And, you know, as probably most, you know, people who get into teaching, you know, uh, have the same experience is that it's also very, uh, um, you know, it provides purpose and meaning for me to help other people understand and to maybe alleviate some of the anxiety that they're experiencing because they can't answer the question of why. If you had to point to a single key insight that you think you've had that people have latched onto in terms of that why or what the F is going on right now, what would you point to? Well, it'd probably be uh, what I've written about uh, applying an addiction model to conspiracy theory, tribalism, QAnon, confirmation bias, you know, all of those uh, those things. What I tried to incorporate in the, the thesis when I was in grad school that, you know, I was told that, you know, it would take a lifetime of, of working on it. Um, but I think it was, you know, that theory and that insight that seems to, you know, at least partially explain a lot of what we're dealing with that is probably the... Uh, you know, the, uh, the most prominent or the most important thing that I've contributed. So just let me understand that, although I've read a bit of what, what mm -hmm. you've said on that regard. What is an addiction model? A few years ago, what I was observing was these, you know, the parallels between uh, the effect that politics and specifically Trumpism was having on um, people's lives and the effect that addiction was having on people's lives. And so... You know, you were seeing people who were defriending each other. You were seeing marriages that were literally dissolving over, you know, one spouse being pro-Trump and one being anti-Trump. It seemed to parallel what was happening with family members who would try to engage in an intervention in an addict's life. Usually what would happen is the addict would uh, cut out the family member rather than discontinue the addictive behavior. And so when I would observe people who were engaging in this high conflict news, and usually it was, it was you know, high conflict uh, you know, news on, in, on the right, conservative news, Fox News or stuff like that, Alex Jones, whatever it was, is that I was observing that there was almost this high that they were, that they were experiencing when they were engaging in this stuff. And so, you know, initially I was thinking that, you know, there was, you know, this, there was, a, you know, the dopamine release um, through the experience of the, uh, the outrage or the fear or the anger. And then I came upon some research that talked about dopamine in terms of uh, 
subjective utility, right? And so I'm like, well, what is confirmation bias? Bias. Well, you know, confirmation bias is very subjective, right? We're trying to uh, confirm our subjective opinion or our subjective belief. So I started thinking about addiction in terms of confirmation bias. That every time we would, you know, seek out some bias confirming information or news, that would give us the dopamine release. And then I came across some interesting research with uh, Robert Sapolsky, who is an endocrinologist out of Stanford who had some research that showed that it's not necessarily about the experience itself, but it's about the anticipation of the experience. And so it was, you know, the anticipation of being right that that created this dopamine release and the fear and the outrage and the anger was basically just the byproduct. As that kind of went a little bit, you know, further along, um, there was some more research that he had where it talks about the optimum dopamine release isn't from being able to uh, predict um, an experience uh, 100% of the time, it was the maximum dopamine release was when it was 50-50. It was, you know, basically a coin flip. And so um, one of the things that I started to think about in that terms was, you know, p- applying that to conspiracy theories and how we've, you know, gradually gone farther and farther down the, this rabbit hole of disinformation. And when you think of, in terms of somebody who has watched Fox News for decades, well, at some point, you can pretty much predict every talking point. You pretty much know what every story is going to be. And so at that point, if you start to introduce different talking points or different information that hadn't been um, heard yet, well, now that's when you're starting to manipulate that anticipation to reward 50-50 process that occurs with addiction. And so when you think about it in terms of conspiracy theories or QAnon, every time a new uh, data point or a a new, well, it's not necessarily a data point, but every, every time a new theory or a new, you know, just completely absurd factor or, you know, there's there's pedophiles in a pizza joint or whatever it may be, every time you inter- introduce uh, something more extreme or something more absurd, you're kind of disrupting what they already knew or, 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 or believed. And so at that point, it has like a tolerance-like effect where once you become accustomed to whatever the facts are or whatever even the mix of facts and disinformation are, um, you build up a tolerance to that. You're no longer getting that uh, 50-50 uh, anticipation to reward. And so they constantly have to be introducing uh, more conspiratorial information. And so, you know, we think about it in that terms, it's why, you know, we've gone farther and farther down this rabbit hole with these conspiracy theories, with QAnon, where, you know, it just seems, you know, completely ridiculous and completely absurd, but it's almost chasing this high uh, to maintain this 50-50 anticipation to reward ratio. If that theory sort of helps us understand conspiracy theories and like QAnon, helps us understand Trumpism, helps us understand the, the radical right, the, the authoritarian impulse that we seem to be struggling really hard to figure out right now. If that's true, what does that tell us about what the antidote might be? Well, first, I would say it's not limited to the right. You know, I think that we saw the same thing on the left, you know, whether it was, um, you know, the impeachments or the Mueller report or the investigations and nobody's immune it's that anticipation right this, this time trump's going down this this impeachment he's going down now or, this, the or i'm going to listen to everything that rachel maddow says exactly the same way that someone else is going to listen to everything that tucker carlson says exactly so to go back to that addiction model so you know one of the things that supposedly talks about is nothing more, is more addictive than maybe right maybe x is happening and that's kind of the essence of a conspiracy theory. Maybe X is happening. 
And so, you know, for the left, that was, you know, maybe this time Trump's going to get impeached. Maybe the second time he'll get impeached. Maybe this time, you know, the Mueller report, maybe this time. So, you know, the left has fallen into its trap. It's one of the things that the media has used, that, you know, to keep us, you know, it's the teaser, you know, the radio teaser. It's, it's, so what is the antidote? You know, I, I don't know what the antidote is. And even if there is one, you know, I thought about that in terms of, you know, I've written some stuff like, you know, you know, if dopamine is the problem, right, you can look at other diseases like Parkinson's where, um, with Parkinson's, it's a, it's a, it's a deficiency of dopamine. And one of the things that they'll do is they'll prescribe uh, medication that, that encourages, or in some ways brings that dopamine level up to a normal level. Well, sometimes it overshoots its mark and then they start to have paranoid delusions and then they have to treat it with an anti, anti-psychotic medication to then manage the dopamine levels. And it's like, okay, well, you know, if dopamine is a problem and this would be an oversimplification, then maybe there's some type of treatment for, you know, you know, dopamine overdose, so to speak. But when you think about it in terms, let's, you know, let's say there was a pill. Maybe all these people just need exercise. That's, that's probably a big part <laughs> of it, right? You know, let, you know, let's say there was a pill that would, that would solve, you know, conspiracy theory, susceptibility and tribalism and confirmation bias and all that. Well, all you gotta do is look to the, the vaccines and you think people are going to really take a pill that's going to, you know, cure them from, uh, you know, from the way that they would internalize it is that, you know, I got to take a pill so that I don't have conservative beliefs anymore. So, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, how to, uh, they're not going to take that. How do you manage it? I, you know, I don't know what the answer is to that. When I was talking to Bandy Lee, uh, was a doctor at Yale who has a collected es- set of essays about Trump's mental disorders. Uh, boy, that collection has, has him diagnosed with a whole long list of different things. They don't all agree on it, but they pretty much all agree that he's a mess. I mean, one thing that that she ran afoul of is the Goldwater rule, where you're not supposed to, as a practicing psychiatrist, diagnose a politician. In fact, they, were, they enhanced that at the beginning of Trump to to kind of put a gag rule on people. Is, you're not in that category, though, right? Because you're not. Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not a psychiatrist, so it doesn't apply to me. But you know, one of the arguments that you'll hear is that you know there's enough. You know, I mean, there's countless thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of footage of his own statements that are out there to observe. And, you know, maybe a psychiatrist would get three hours or six hours to, you know, normally in a uh, private setting to diagnose a a private client. But, you know, Trump has, you know, there's, well, I mean, decades of his statements and his behavior to to observe. And there's no shortage of that. And, you know, one of the things also about that is, you know, it's, the duty to warn aspect of it. Are we going to sit there and, and, and basically, uh, you know, gag professionals who are, have expertise in this field to keep them from warning the country and the world if somebody as dangerous as Trump because of, you know, some antiquated rule? You probably have groups dueling to say he's the healthiest person ever that he hires and then people saying he's a psychopath. Did you see the conspiracy that birds aren't real? No, I didn't see that. There's a group of people that have uh, merchandise and uh, like a van and a bunch of other things where they are promoting the idea that a certain number of bird species are robots that are spying on us, right? Now, that actually is a conspiracy theory that you could imagine people picking up, right? And being like, that crow, I'm getting really suspicious about that crow. It's actually a fake conspiracy theory and a kind of a clever one at that. 
do you think that there that that there's any possibility of like to inoculate people against real conspiracy theories by showing them what fake ones and and teaching them kind of what they're how they are constructed yeah I, i'm not familiar with the the bird one so what do you mean it was a fake conspiracy what i that? mean it's actually put together by some young people as a teaching device more or less and they do not believe it but they showed how people might believe it yeah i mean i think just maybe trying to teach kids critical thinking um you know would go a long ways i think um you know maybe understanding civics a little bit better would, would go a long ways one of the things that that drives me crazy is when i get in arguments with people who want to argue with me you know about something that's you know in the field of either psychology or you know of the of the law I'm by no means the, you know, the most, you know, learned scholar of the law. You know, I have a law degree, but, you know, there's, you know, plenty of people who I defer to all the time when it comes to the law. But if somebody hasn't gone to law school, you know, I'm relatively confident that I probably have a little bit more understanding of the law than, than what they have. And, you know, to sit there and get in arguments with, with people who didn't go through that process. And I think when you've gone through that process, you understand how difficult it is for some of those conspiracy theories and some of those, um, um, suspicions, you know, are there bad judges? Are there bad lawyers? Of course, but they're, you know, the majority of those people, they're battle tested with law school. They're battle tested in their careers. You know, it means something to them. Their integrity of their work means something. And to just, you know, summarily dismiss 80 some judges or whatever it was that, that saw cases about the, you know, the election as, you know, every, every single one of them was either in the bag or they didn't hear the evidence or whatever it was. And so you know, I think part of it is just, when, you know, when people don't have exposure to how things work it just it just creates this vacuum for conspiratorial thinking or, or to just fill in the blanks with just nonsense and so you know whether that you know we start that you know at a young age with you know critical thinking skills or you know something like you said with uh, to show how a conspiracy theory takes hold at this point i think we need to kind of try anything whatever we're doing right now it's definitely not working well i think one of the tricky things is that it's hard to figure out who is the arbiter of what what is true and real. You have many received beliefs and customs that are maybe even weirder than, than QAnon or as weird, right? That people believe wholly in and have for centuries, cults and religions and uh, other customs that run in families. Aren't those sort of a, a block to critical thinking? Well, they are. I mean, I, I think in many ways, um, you know, a lot of times religion has kind of, you know, taught, conditioned kids to suspend, you know, their critical thinking in order to um, believe in and follow the religion. You know, I think in, in many ways that can be a breeding ground for um, suspension of, you know, objective reality or, uh, or facts. But, you know, obviously it's, you know, you're not, you know, you're not going to shut down religion. That's never going to happen. It's, you know, first amendment protected. Um, but you know, it is, it is tough. I mean, how, how do you teach a kid critical thinking, you know, while also teaching them about, you know, virgin births or whatever that may be. And so, yeah, it is a challenge for sure. What else would you like people to know about you that you haven't already told me? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. Is there a question that you wish I'd asked that I haven't? 
No, I think you asked a lot of questions that uh, that I wasn't expecting. You kind of caught me off guard a little bit, but uh, are you okay with how it went? Um, I, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was uh, flowing as well as uh, I would have liked to, but uh, you know, you you do what you have to do. One of the things that I that I try to do when I've heard someone on a number of podcasts is not to repeat what they have done. I would tell people, Nick's been on a bunch of podcasts a lot. His voice is out there. He's writing all the time. If you're interested in his insights, they're out there and they're going to keep coming. What I tried to understand for myself today is who are you and something about what you think beyond that. I think it was a little uncomfortable for both of us at times. And I apologize for that. But I feel like I have a better sense of you now and where you come from. I think I was anticipating more questions uh, based on looking at your guest list and stuff. Um, I think I was anticipating more questions towards, I guess, democratic politics more, you know, or just politics in general. So I was a little bit thrown off by that. But, you know, and I look at, you know, I've done, you know, some some really small minor podcasts, but th- the way I look at it is every one of them is practice, right? I mean, this is a kind of completely foreign for me and um, not all of them, you know, I think David actually, you know, had, had told me at one point, he's like, hey, not all of them are going to be home runs. Some of them, I, you know, I had one, you know, it was actually a repeat of appearance that, you know, I just, and maybe to that's part of it too. Sometimes I don't, I feel like I'm searching for my words. Some days are better than others after brain injuries, you know? And so I just don't feel like I'm, I flow as well as others. But, you know, it, I, I look at it as every one of them is, is an experience. Every one of them is practice. It's you know, an opportunity to, um, you know, maybe get some new information out while also uh, you know, getting better at, at, at uh, making the appearances. I've appeared on a couple myself. And I remember the first time I did it, I was really unhappy. And I let the guy know. And I came back as the only person he's ever had on twice, I believe a little happier with it after I got a second chance at it. But uh, it's kind of the nature of getting yourself out there. So my first podcast appearance was April 5th or something like that. But it didn't post until April 30th. I was on Lincoln Project on April 29th. It posted on the 30th also. So both came out the same day. But I had COVID when I was uh, being interviewed by, by Reed Galen. And I think that being feeling like shit, actually was a, was a, a positive because I, I, I felt too shitty to get as nervous or as anxious as I probably otherwise would have, you know, considering it was essentially the second one, but none of it had been posted yet. And so I think that helped kind of calm me down and kind of slow me down. Um, so I think that was a positive. The other part of it too, one of the things that I struggle with is that I don't speak as well as I write. And one of the things is, is I have a hard time verbally repeating the shit that I write, that I write is articulate. I, I, as I, I do. totally feel for you there. When I write, it requires many drafts for me to figure out what I'm thinking and say what I'm thinking. Some people, I just, I'll interview them and I'll be amazed at the paragraphs, the coherent paragraphs that they can spin out one after another. And I'm almost like, God, I wish I could do that. It's not the way my brain works. No, it isn't. And you know, the other thing too, actually, uh, you know, it's almost like the experiences. It's anxiety of having to take a final exam that I wrote the questions to, but I'm struggling to remember the answers for. Does that make sense? It totally does. <laughs> I mean, like I'll, I'll, I'll interview an academic who wrote a book three years ago, um, mm-hmm. and they will be able to quote from it. And I just read it <laughs> like yesterday, and I'm like, good God. Like, and if I'd written it myself, I still would have the same problem. 
it's just not my facility to hang on to things like that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a process. It's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge and that's just, you know, that's how I look at it. You know, I know I have a neat, unique perspective on things that somebody, you know, this morning basically uh, sent me something this morning and they're like, you got to finish this book, man. It's like, your threads are important, but you got to write the book. She's like, you know, you may not realize this yet, but you're basically, you know, you're, you're the country's therapist right now. You don't like to think about it that way because it makes you uncomfortable. Um, but that's basically where you're, where you're at with it. You know, when I met David and was walking around with David and that, you know, it's one of the things that came up. I think it was, what's his name from Apple? I'm drawing a blank now. The founder Jobs or Wozniak? Yeah, or, yes, Jobs. Yeah. You, know, it's, you know, the people the people who can change the world are the ones who are crazy enough to think they can, you know. And, you know, I know by the reaction to the shit that I write and, the, you know, the response that, you know, that it, that it, you know, that it gets that, you know, I have the, the ability to articulate to, you know, I'm an observationist and an analyst and I'm able to, you know, see things that most people can't see and then articulate and then the ones who can to articulate them in a way that, you know, very few of those can. That's kind of the, you know, the challenge is, is trying to, uh, you know, to, to get the work out there, to, um, you know, to do it in a way that's comfortable to but hopefully, you know, have some type of positive effect, you know, make a difference. I heard you asked on a different podcast about whether you thought Trump would run again. And you said you didn't. Have you changed your mind? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think now that, um, you know, it's still possible he won't. It's still a long ways away. Um, you know, health could always pop up and catch him, although he's the type of bastard that'll live to be 100, you know. I fear that, um, too. <laughs> you, know, just, you know, he's just fueled by grievance and revenge and, you know, just piss and vinegar. And, you know, he'll probably live to be 100, you know. But um, so you don't want to count on that. And it's still a possibility that the legal system could catch up to him. Um, but I think that he has a hard time allowing other people to capture the spotlight. Just watch how he's treating DeSantis, the guy who's in the lead for the nomination without him in the race. He keeps smacking him because he can't stand it. That's right. It would kill. I mean, well, I think what was it when Bannon was on the cover of Time? You know, it, you know, it drove him crazy. You know, he can't handle you know his narcissism. He has to suck out every molecule of oxygen in the Or he's just a very clever guy, and he knows how to crush his enemies and elevate his friends. There's something very strategic that I don't think he gets credit for right now about the way he's assiduously changing the Republican Party. A lot of politicians don't wield the power that they have. He has no shyness about that. Yeah, I, I, I would I would challenge you on the use of the word strategic. I don't think it's strategic. You don't think it's strategic that he's ousting uh, election officials that aren't for him, that he's picking nominees that are sycophants of his. I mean, what what is strategy if not that? He's not always right about who he picks, but I think the strategy is more the byproduct, right? And it's more of you know, it's it's his mythologies, right? I mean, it, it, you think the pathology just explains it better than the strategy? It's his motivations and his instincts, and um, you know, it, it's it's all pathology driven. Whether or not the, it, it, the strategy, you know, the strategy is the byproduct, whether or not it's a, a successful strategy or not is kind of incidental to the pathologies. He's always going to demand 100% loyalty, even if, even as he gives none. They always are going to demand 100% of the pie. You know, they're not going to give anybody else any. And if, you know, if they don't get 100% of the pie, then that whole notion of unfairness kicks in. And so, you know, it, it, is, it is a constant zero-sum divide-and-conquer mentality in order to, you know, 
dominate, you know, in every single way that he can. And that's more of a function of his narcissism um, and, you know, the self-absorption. You've probably followed this debate about whether Trump is the symptom or the problem. I've talked to a lot of people who who will make the argument that he's a symptom because a lot of the crazy that he brought was there before, that he just tapped into that. And sometimes they run ahead of him. They would argue, I think, that anybody or at some point, someone else, someone would have tapped into what's going on there. What's your take on that? Well, one of the ways, the way that I've described it is that uh, Trump, he's not the cause, he's the symptom. But similar to gasoline found at the scene of arson, he's also an accelerant, right? And so, um, you know, I, I think part of it for him is that his, again, his pathologies, I mean, there is, there is no conscience, there is no remorse, there is no shame, um, at least not in the sense of, uh, you know, there's shame if he gets, you know, he has to deal with rejection or, um, uh, but there's not shame in, from a moral standpoint. There's no honor. You know, so much of, of our political system is built upon the honor system. And he was really the first one that came along and just kind of, you know, lit a match to all of that stuff. And, and you know, if, if there was a way to bend a rule, he, you know, he would trample over it. If there was a way to break a rule and get away, like he would do it. Because he was the first one to do it is because we just haven't seen anybody um, who is as is, is severely pathologically disordered as he, as he is. I was talking to a... a Democratic fundraiser in Florida recently, and she thinks we're better off with Trump running because at the worst he can get a term, whereas if DeSantis runs, he's showing so many skills and abilities that she thinks he'll be in for eight for sure. Do you think the impact of another four years of what did you call it, like trickle down pathology? trickle down pathology can we handle that much more damage from this guy again i mean i would argue that i would rather take eight years of DeSantis than four years of trump now that you know we don't know what DeSantis may be and trump may have uh basically you know create a uh, a permission structure to where a guy like DeSantis could basically just follow in his footsteps kind of is yeah he's kind of playing a lot of the same cards yeah we may see that a lot of the you know the problems we're, we're dealing with now is you know Republican legislatures who just may not certify election results. And that may occur whether that's DeSantis or Trump. So it may be a moot point. But one of the things, you know, about having Trump back in office is, and I don't remember who was it, might have been David Frum, where he said, you know, the, the Raptors have figured out how to work the doorknobs. That was a wonderful phrase. I noted it too. That might be my phrase of the last five years, the Velociraptors. Yeah. Yeah, the Velociraptors, right? And so, you know, when he gets in there now, um, you know, we're not going to have two or three years of, you know, people telling him, you know, manip basically manipulating him with child psychology, telling him why, you know, he, he, you know, it's more beneficial to him to not do something. He's just, I mean, he's gonna, it's going to be revenge driven. He's not going to go pick a bunch of generals that are at core patriots. He's going to pick people who will do exactly what the heck he says. One can imagine very likely that that the game he would play is to start where he ended. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, instead of, I'm forgetting the name of, uh, was it McGann? You know, instead of starting with a, a White House counsel like McGann, we're going to start with a guy like Eastman. Yeah, the guy who wrote the blueprint for the coup. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's not going to be the ending point. That's going to be the starting point. I think it's possible. That's why. And what, what frightens the crap out of me is we live in a two-party system. He's got that party locked up. Con country's not doing well. 
we're going to elect the Republican, even if it's Trump. If it's bad enough, we will switch horses. Even without tampering with elections. Yeah, he could win it outright. He could win outright. What would that mean psychologically to you? The way that I've described this is that um, for whatever reason, uh, other than when I'm talking politics with people who I love, who are Trump supporters or Republican supporters, um, that that tends to be uh, unsettling and, and disorienting. The analogy that I've used is that when I'm writing, when I'm observing, when I'm analyzing, is that it's similar to a uh, an ER doc, right, who uh, can almost disassociate from the gore and from the carnage. It's almost an academic or an intellectual exercise for me where, you know, when I'm writing, I'm not pissed off. I'm not angry. It's it's trying to solve this puzzle. It's trying to answer the question of why and then also help other people understand it. And so there's almost this dissociation to, you know, the trauma that's going on collectively. From that standpoint, you know, it doesn't bother me. Now, when I've gotten in my personal arguments, you know, with personal relationships, that's been a challenge in the way that I to stick with that metaphor, you know, it's the, it's the equivalent of being an ER doc who can, you know, save four or five people's lives over, you know, over the over the night shift. But then your kid comes in, and now he needs to be saved. And now suddenly you can't disassociate. Now your hands are shaking, and it's personally affecting you. And I've gotten in the, you know, people who I love when I get into, you know, relationship damaging and maybe even relationship ending arguments. You know, suddenly you know it becomes very challenging to me. It's you know it's it's uh, you know it's a it's a very uh, you can't be so clinical when it's personal, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it feels like my IQ drops thirty points, and you know, I can't you know, I can't get out sentences. I can't remember. You know, I can't put put together coherent arguments because you're just you're emotionally invested. So, are are you saying that you fear that his if he makes a comeback that that's going to take you down psychologically? No, I don't. I don't think it'll take me down because I I view it almost as a um, or maybe it'll give you a purpose. Yeah, exactly. It's purpose and meaning, you know, and that was something that we, we didn't touch on earlier. But, you know, one of the things that I've written about, I've talked about this in another podcast, is that, you know, when you've been through a really traumatic experience, um, you know, it's especially when it's random, like brain injuries or what, what it may be, you know, it, it's confusing, it's debilitating, it's disorienting, it's unfair. You know, something, you know, unfair happened to me and it ruined my life. And it's only when you are able to create or derive purpose and meaning from that experience, are you able to shed um, it, what we end up doing? We attach the, the, you know, it's a senseless tragedy, right? Something senseless happened to you. But once you're able to derive purpose and meaning from that that trauma or that adversity or that, you know, that tragedy, it's only at that point that you are able to shed the senseless label to it, right? It's not senseless anymore because, you know, you, you created purpose and meaning from it. And so, you know, now you're no longer defined by the tragedy or the adversity of what knocked you down, you're defined by how you got got back up and responded to it. And so, you know, if you go back to that purpose and meaning, you know, I, you know, that's one of the ways that I try to view all the stuff that happened to me and the experiences I had, the injuries, you know, everything that caused me to have to go back to grad school, the, you know, the uh, interactions with disordered personalities and to kind of put me in this point. And so if he wins, then, you know, I'm going to, you know, assuming they don't, they don't come and lock me up for, for, for saying shit against the, you know, the dear leader. I'm going to keep writing and, and I'm sure there's going to be no shortage of material. I hope he doesn't win, but if he does, you know, I'm sure I'm going to be very busy. Yeah. Maybe my, I'll have to continue my podcast as well. Where do you want to be in five years? You have a Patreon, which you, you now have like 120 people who are supporting your writing. That's a pretty good start. Do you want to be 
like self-supporting as a political psychology pundit? Where, where do you want to be? The Patreon is actually free. I don't have a paywall because, you know, um, initially who the hell was going to pay for to read something nobody know, nobody knows? I mean, a lot of people have, you know, they, you start an app, you have a free version and a, and a and another level down the road when people do. Well, 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 then part of it also became, you know, this information is really important. And, you know, is it more important for me to have people read this or to have a, you know, a three or four or five dollar ask to prevent people from reading it? And so it felt, you know, it felt more important to, you know, to have no paywall. You did set it up on that platform, which does allow for charging down the road. I mean, it does, yeah, it yeah. does allow for, it. Yeah. you know, people do you know, donate for free, but it's not, you know, there's no paywall. And I appreciate that. I mean, it's awesome. They do put a lot of time into this. I would like to be able to um, still do the therapy stuff on the side, you know, maybe as a pro bono um, situation. And I can kind of selectively work with people who I want to work with. Um, without having to worry about, you know, if they can afford it or dealing with insurance or Medicaid, like, you know, like I do now, all that stuff and still, you know, be able to work with people one-on-one. But one of the things that I'm struggling with now in my therapy practice is that I can spend, you know, one or two or three hours and I'll spend sometimes three hours in a session because we do physical activities and stuff and, and really make a difference in somebody's life. But that's one person, or I can spend three or four hours writing something that will literally make a, a, an impression or touch people's lot, you know, tens of thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands or maybe millions, you know, some of the stuff I've written is, you know, millions of impressions. And so it, it almost becomes this thought process of where can I, can I be most efficient and provide the most benefit, you know, and, and is it, you know, three hours with one person or is it three hours writing something that, you know, that, that thousands of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people can, can read. And so I struggle with that. And so, you know, when I look five years down the line, it, it would be nice to be able to support myself with my writing. You know, whether that's a combination of psychology, the politics, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, but, you know, books, however that is, and to still, you know, be able to have the, the flexibility. So you're kind of become a political therapist. Well, you know, one of the ways that I describe it is, you know, I, I, I deal in polypsych. you know, it's, it's, it's political psychology. That's kind of the way that I look at it. A lot of my personal clients now are people who heard me on podcasts or, you know, they reached out to me, uh, or, you know, I got a, a parent in, in California whose kid lives in Denver. You know, I worked with her, a parent in Massachusetts, who kid, you know, whose kid lives in Denver. You know, so, you know, that, that, that's been a big part of it. I think my perspective and my ability to articulate it is pretty unique. I think it needs to be out there. Um, the reception seems to confirm that. And, you know, at some point it would be nice to find a way to uh, be able to do that full time. Because, you know, as it is right now, it's, you know, I'm doing it around the day job. If I was doing this full time, I, I can only imagine the amount of um, information I could put out there. there. There is a subfield of political science called political psychology. There's Americanists and people who study the world who spend their lives writing and reading in that area. Have you read any of that, uh, anything in that field? Well, I'm embarrassingly uh, poorly read. You know, it's, I constantly have people, hey, have you read this book? Have you did this? Have you done that? Because yeah, there is like a literature of presidential psychology and, and things like that. Um, I, I, I'd be curious if you delved into it a little bit, what you'd think. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because a lot of what I'm writing isn't necessarily about the politicians, right? I mean, it's not, it is, but a lot of it is, and I'm writing about my observations of the kind of the collective, you know, whether it's, you know, the use of anti-vaxxers, you know, a, a form of identity politics or, you know, the effect that, you know, Bannon convincing people to, you know, to tear down the nation in the name of America first, or just the effect of Trump on people on the left or whatever it is. So, you know, a lot of it is, you know, observing um, you know, the effect that it's having on people and writing about that also. Do you listen to his podcast? 
Whose podcast? Bannon's. Occasionally I've listened to it. Do you think what he's doing there is quite different or similar to what Trump does? I think with, you know, what Bannon does, and I wrote this in one of the the articles uh, I wrote on Bannon that got some traction. It's interesting to see how delivery affects people, right? And Bill Barr was really good at this, is that if you talk low and slow, people, it seems to diffuse the radical nature of what you're saying. And Bannon's kind of that same way, right? Um, he speaks he speaks low and he speaks slow. That tone and the delivery disarms from the message, I think. And so, you know, what Bannon does is Bannon basically intellectualizes the authoritarian movement in a way that allows people to justify their anti-democratic and un-American impulses on the right. And that's dangerous because Trump is basically, you know, very emotion. He tends to kind of, you know, incite or uh, um, affect people emotionally. He's very reactive. It's very emotionally reactive, both him and the people. And, you know, they, they they feed off each other, right? And so with Bannon, it's much more of an intellectual message. It's an, it's an intellectual con, you know, connection. And the way that I describe it is that, you know, Trump is kind of, uh, he's speaking to, and I, I hate to use the term the deplorables, but it's a common reference. He's speaking to that segment of society that both embraces and is insulted by the implorables. But Bannon, Bannon's speaking to the Trump intellectuals, the Trumpism intellectuals. You know, he's speaking to, you know, to people, you know, who maybe, you know, were, were formerly Chamber of Commerce Republicans who have kind of been slowly but surely, you know, pulled into this authoritarian mindset. They're supporting, you know, the Hungarian model and that type of stuff. Yeah, that's uh, it's bad. Also, they're both bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've been very generous with your time. They complement each other, also. You know, that's yeah. what makes it really difficult. Right. And, and that was part of uh, part of Trump's success was harnessing some of Bannon's brain even though he denies it, uh, to get himself into office. There's no question that there were things being imported from other countries that were using immigration as a, to help them move to the right or, or help them pick an authoritarian or whatever. A lot of that, all the trade stuff, probably a lot of that associated with Bannon, I think, but I don't know. Anyway, um, it's been really interesting to talk to you. I, I appreciate it. Well, I wish you the best and uh, keep fighting the fight. All right. Thanks, man. Good talking to you. That was Nick Carmody. Nick is Nick underscore Carmody on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.